everyone. It's really good to uh, see you and be with you. Um, It's a joy to be doing this series alongside of Bridgetown. Um, And um, I think it's important as we're doing this series together uh, for the future of our churches. And so I bring love and, as John Mark said, weather from San Francisco. Um, I want to continue this morning in our series in Future Church. Now, each week what we're doing is we're looking at a challenge that we're facing in our culture, especially as we reemerge from this global pandemic. And then we're, we're trying to lay out a vision of an alternative society we want to be as a, as a church community. And then we end with a, a practice from our rule of life, and we're sharing a rule of life. It's really kind of cool, West Coast uh, urban city churches that share a way of life uh, following the way of Jesus together. So if you're ever in San Francisco, we welcome you. We're living in rhythm together. So today, what I want to teach on is a community of rest and a culture of exhaustion. And ultimately, I'll get, I'll, we'll get to through the practice of Sabbath. So uh, being a community of, of rest and a culture of exhaustion is what I want to talk about. And then ultimately, we'll get to Sabbath. So let me read some scriptures to you. Um, we're going we're gonna to be t- coming from Hebrews chapter 4, but I'm going to read a, uh, a narrative swath of scriptures. So you can open your Bibles to Hebrews 4. We're going to end up there. But, um, but let me just, uh, just marinate in these, in these scriptures for, for just a second. Genesis 2. By the seventh day, God had finished his work on the seventh day. He rested from all his work. God blessed the seventh day, and he made it a holy day. Because on the day he rested from his work, all the creating God had done. This is the story of how it all started, of the heaven and earth when they were created. Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Mark 2. Then Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people, not people to meet the requirements of Sabbath. Luke 23. He went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. He took the body down from the cross and wrapped it in a long sheet of linen cloth and laid it in a new tomb that had been carved out of the rock. This was done late on Friday afternoon, the day of preparation, as the Sabbath was about to begin. Hebrews 4, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Lord, as we turn to this scripture and these scriptures, this narrative arc of of rest in your scriptures, we pray that from rest, from this place of resting in Jesus, I would teach, so I ask that you would um, equip me, anoint me now. But I pray that also um, this spirit of rest would be imparted to the church today, that we would take up your rest and take you seriously when you promise a rest for us. Many of us are driven, so driven by to-do lists and things left undone that we never truly rest. But you said there remains a rest for us. May we step into this rest. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to start today with a uh, little confession. When you're a guest, it's good to, to know the junk I'm dealing with. So a little bit about me. Uh, my confession is I'm addicted to Dwayne The Rock Johnson's Instagram feed. So there you go. 
a like every time he posts something, I'm here for it type of thing, right? I mean, I don't have alerts set on my phone or anything like that, but Instagram algorithms know what's up, and they always place his videos on top of my feet. Now, this is not a proud confession. This is like an honest confession. Like, I'm literally addicted. Now, I was never really into him before. I'm not into wrestling or anything like that. But during the pandemic, I got addicted to his hustle. Like how it's like 2 a.m. and he's doing a leg workout and talking about how he's going to eat a steak and then finally get to bed around 4, but then wake up at 6 when his toddlers wake up and get him up for the day. And then he comes out with this healthy energy drink for those of us mortals who can't keep up with this hustle. And he sells it, he sells his hustle in a can. It's actually quite good. Um, But I've been noticing something in his comments lately. I don't typically read comments, but like I said, I'm kind of into the rock right now. And his followers are like, rock, we love your hustle. But if you don't get more than four hours a night of sleep, if you don't get four hours of sleep a night, you're going to die, like literally die. And we're like scientists are writing on there. I've done research and you might die. That sort of thing. Like you can't keep doing this. And we want you around. We like you. We want you to still remain. So don't flame out or burn out. So just calm down, bro. I remember a few years ago when the Golden State Warriors, uh, our little local basketball team in San Francisco, was on uh, the most winningest streak in history, in NBA history, 2015-2016. Every starter was starting every night, playing the max amount of minutes. Everyone in the Bay was worried that our guys would flame out. They interviewed Draymond Green, one of the basketball uh, stars, and how they were playing every night. Like, you're playing every single night. You're starting. You're playing all these minutes. And his response was, we're all right. We're young. We're young, bro. We're good. Like, we're in our 20s. We're going to be fine. That sort of thing. Now, we didn't win the championship that year. Injuries followed, and the team, as you may know, um, is not doing well. You might be rejoicing over that reality. The fact is, no matter how strong you are or how young you are, exhaustion Exhaustion and burnout will come and find you. In fact, after 12 months that we've lived through, almost everyone I know is exhausted and on the verge of burnout of some kind. The reality is exhaustion and burnout are very real. In 2019, the World Health Organization defined burnout as a syndrome associated with chronic stress at work that goes unmanaged. Little did they know that months after they reported this, everyone in the world would be bringing their work home and making the line between work and home close to impossible to define. Psychologist Christina Masala, professor at Cal Berkeley, has been studying burnout since the 1970s. And she says that burnout has three components. The first component of burnout is exhaustion. You're physically and emotionally exhausted when you feel uh, being under stress for too long. I, I think that we're all there during, and during the year of the pandemic and racial tension and mass shootings and bad news and riots and politics and homeschooling, all of that stuff, we're exhausted. So the first component of burnout and exhaustion, the second, is cynicism. Burnout, beca- uh, burnout comes with a feeling of cynicism, where you switch from trying to do your very best all the time to doing the bare minimum. Anyone else give up, give up on dressing the bottom half of your body during the pandemic? It's like where you're just kind of like, I'm just going to do the bare minimum. What can I do just to keep my job, to re- just remain a Christian, just to get my kids fed a few times a day, like bare minimum stuff? And the third component, component of burnout is blame. When you start to blame yourself, when you start saying things like, what's wrong with me? Why am I not good at this? 
Why am I not good at life or adulting or work or Christianity or faith or etc.? Why can't I handle this? For me, in November and December of last year, I was in full-on burnout. I would get up in the morning and try to pray and think, why am I not good at this? I'm a pastor. I like kind of get paid to pray. Why am I not good at this? I would try to answer emails and questions from our staff and our congregation. I think, why can't I handle this? What's wrong with me? Burnout was first recognized as a psychological diagnosis in 1974 when psychologist Herbert Frudenberger applied it to cases of physical or mental collapse caused by overwork or stress. But burnout is different from exhaustion. Author Helen Peterson explains that exhaustion means going to the point where you can't go any further. Burnout means reaching that point and pushing yourself to keep going, whether for days or weeks or years. By the way, this is literally The Rock's motto for life. Go to the point where you can't go and then keep going. I would say this. Burnout is when your soul can no longer bear the weight of your life. Is when your, your inner life, your soul, the thing that's like the, the sacred part of your entire being that's connected to every single part of you can't bear the weight of all of your responsibilities, all of your life, all of your work, all of the stuff anymore. For many of us, this was a reality way before the pandemic hit or whatever 2020 was, whatever we're going to call that in, in, in the future. Another article I read was trying to explain why millennials are considered the burnout generation. The writer, Helen Peterson, writes that burnout isn't a place millennials visit and come back from. She says, as a millennial, it's our permanent residence. If you're a millennial, you're probably thinking, yes, finally someone is talking about this. I live there. I live in burnout. As I've said, These are not just problems that pandemic life has brought upon us. These are the realities that many of us have been living for a very long time. One of the reasons our culture is especially prone to exhaustion is because of our our theology of progress. Now, I say theology because we've turned it into that. Progress for us is the way we think life should be going up and to the right forever, that we should always be progressing. Progress has become our functional theology. It's what gets us out of bed in the morning. Progress is the real theology our nation was built on. And our progressive cities like Portland and San Francisco, we've turned progress into our ultimate urbanite belief system. Now, the way progress is experienced in our bodies, and if you're like, I'm not that progressive, the way that you experience progress in your bodies is this. You're always wanting to get to tomorrow. That's how we feel it in our bodies. We want to move to tomorrow because we think tomorrow will be more perfect than today. My daughter, Juniper, uh, she's two years old. She doesn't like tomorrow. She only likes today. She has no concept of tomorrow yet. It's only now. She hates moving from the present into the future. She hates it. At night when we try to get her to bed, we tell her that we're going to see her tomorrow. She doesn't understand tomorrow. She only understands right now. And you're putting me to bed, and I will be in bed forever. I don't understand how tomorrow works yet. My wife read to me this post the other night from a mom who wrote, why do the people who want to go to bed have to put the people who don't want to go to bed to bed? And I was like, yes, that, that is it. That's, that's exactly right. But of course, we adults know better. We know about tomorrow, and, that tip, and typically, daily life is an obstacle in our way to progress. If we can just get to the next thing, 
If we can get to where our home remodel is done or when the kids move from diapers into being potty trained or summer vacation this year or my job promotion, we just want to get out of here into the future. And what this means, of course, is that we work hard and long and never really rest because our real main task is to get the heck out of here, get out of the now into the future. We can't, we can't really rest because we feel the now is a place of suffering. It's a place of tribulation. It's a place that uh, the sooner that we get into the good and perfect future, the, the only way and the only place we'll ever be truly happy and at peace is the future, the, the better off the whole world will be. But of course, there is no place to go because every time we finally reach the future, it vanishes into the present. This feeling drives our theology progress. And progress has led us into our technologies. This is the internet and the mobile phone and the TikTok and the Facebook. See, since the 1950s, America foresaw the progress of the supercomputer, and people thought we would actually move from a 40-hour work week into a 30-hour work week and only work six months a year like the French do, like that sort of thing. Like, we will become people who sit at cafes and, you know, smoke cigarettes all day. Like, that's where America is heading. And there was actually a huge national discussion about, like, what are we going to do when we don't work as much, when we don't need to work as much? There's even uh, videos that talk about when the computers get to the house house and they end with this saying, I watch this one where it ends with like, and one day you'll be able to work from home. And everybody's like, probably then like, woo, working from home. And we're like, ah, don't do it. That sort of thing. (laughs) What happened though? What happened? Why aren't we doing the 30 hour work week and six months a year? What happened is that we traded. What What people used to value in the 50s, now I'm not saying that we go back there at all, but what people valued in the 50s, the cultural value was time. People wanted more time to be at home with neighbors, family, community. What happened was we traded time for money. Instead of talking, taking that 30-hour work week and working six months a year, we traded that for more work and thus more money. People worked more so they can get paid more, and when people make more, they can buy more, and thus our GDP went up, and our economy was better, and our nation was stronger, and now it's our civic duty to consume and work and continue that cycle. It's our, it's our civic duty to do this. So now in our culture, people who have a lot of money but no time, we call these people rich and successful. Oh, you have no time and all lots of money, you're successful. And the people who have a great deal of time but no money, we call these people poor. Or even worse, we call them lazy. Success is someone who is busy and works hard and is doing a lot of different things and making a great deal of money. So we traded time for money. So we use our time to make money, and we're not using our time to make money, we use our time to spend money. Online shopping and in real life shopping is like coming back now, and vacations and Airbnb experiences. And if we're not doing that, we live with the FOMO of the people who are doing that and posting all about it. Now, of course, we're all the way back to this idea of exhaustion and burnout. This is our cultural ethos. This is the topography of our, of our of millennial generation, but our cities, we're exhausted. And a lot of us on the verge of burnout. The spiritual writer Henry Nouwen writes in his book, Reaching Out, that there was a point in his life where, quote, I was living in a very dark place, and the term burnout was a convenient psychological translation for a spiritual death. Spiritual death. This is where all this leads. We're not just exhausted. We're not just burnt out. Many of us are heading towards a spiritual death. 
And to all of this exhaustion and all of this burnout and all of this spiritual death, the writer of Hebrews writes, and yet there remains a rest. And yet in the midst of all of this cultural going and working and exhaustion, there remains, there's still in front of us a rest. Let these words be like medicine, like balm, like water, and yet there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Did you hear that? A Sabbath rest for the people of God? Notice, it's not just any kind of rest. It's not the rest of vacation. It's not the rest of lying on the couch and binge-watching The Office. It's not the rest of, of, that comes from an energetic flow yoga class. This is something different. This is Sabbath rest. Now, in context, in Hebrews, up to this point, there's been a lot said in the library of scriptures about rest. When you get to Hebrews chapter four, there has been a lot said up to this point in the library of scriptures about the idea of rest. In Genesis, we read that on the seventh day of creation, God rested from his labor. Commentators quickly and accurately point out that Adam and Eve's first day of life would have been on Sabbath, the day of rest. We were created on the sixth day and the first day of life would have been the seventh day, which says a lot about humanity. That we, are not hum- that we are not human doings, we're human beings. We were created to work, this is true, but our work is one from rest, not for rest. But of course, we all know the rest of the story. And we should know the rest of the story here. The story should frame our imagination as followers of Jesus. The story goes that humanity rebelled, that it didn't trust God, that it didn't choose the way of loving trust in God's will and in God's way. And one of the consequences was that work would get hard. That was one of the the consequences of the fall. The curse of the fall was thorns and thistles. When I was growing up, I worked on a a golf course on the maintenance crew. I I mowed the grass and I would wake up when I was 16 years old at 4 a.m. and get to the golf course and we'd work where I'm from was 100 degree temperatures in the summer. And I would work on this golf course and me and the maintenance crew, the, the maintenance crew had a joke that our jobs would be awesome if it wasn't for the golfers. If we could just mow the yard and not have to deal with the golfers, our job would be awesome. And pastors sometimes have these same jokes, that ministry would be great if it wasn't for the people. I mean, not here and not me. I'm just saying I've heard this out there in the world before. Now, you might have your own version of this, how work is hard, how it does feel like work most of the time. This is thorns and thistles, right? And not just thorns and thistles, but predators and pillagers as well. Threats of all kinds in our work, threats of being stolen from or threats of being outperformed or outbid or just destroyed altogether in our work. So the idea of rest that came into the Old Testament consists of two strands of rest when it comes to our work. As one commentator writes, in the Old Testament, the thematic treatment of the idea of rest consists of two main strands, the Sabbath rest, rest from our routine labor, and the promise of rest from wandering, journeying, or enemy threat. So these two ideas of rest that, that kind of coalesce here in Genesis, where we're gonna get rest um, from our labors and our harsh work, and we're gonna get rest for our souls, from the enemy, from wandering and trying to find water, wandering and trying to find sanctuary or place. We're just wandering souls, we're restless people, and we're finding rest for our souls. So in Genesis, we get introduced, we get introduced this, this character named Noah. Noah, whose name literally means rest or comfort. But we know how the story turned out. He wasn't the one to bring rest and his, that his parents hoped for when they named him. 
And in Exodus, when God delivers an enslaved people by destroying the enemy Egypt, he says to them that my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Okay? Now, this is an important juncture in Scripture because from this point on, Scripture speaks, when Scripture speaks of God giving rest, it will be, always be in the context of his personal presence among his people. So rest now, from Exodus on, is tied with God's personal presence. Now, if you keep going in the Old Testament, you see that Israel eventually gets into the promised land, but rest is elusive. It never seems to be permanent. The people of God have moments of rest, both from labor and rest from enemies and wandering, but the fatigue of the fall always seems to find them. But then the prophets would foretell a day when God would bring Israel and all people into his true rest. So now, when, you, when Jesus enters onto the scene in Matthew 11, and he says these words, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. That word rest is a loaded term. It has so much history behind it. It's rest for our souls. It's rest from our labor. It's rest from our enemies. And so he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. Then he says, and you will find rest for your souls. This is a direct correlation to Exodus 33, when God said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. This is direct correlation to Psalm 23, who, the shepherd who restores our soul. And here it is, finally, the rest that we've been waiting for. Now, what's interesting is that in context, this, the, Sabbath, the rest that Jesus is referring to here is connected to the Sabbath rest. And the reason why we know that, and this is kind of what Hebrews is borrowing from here, is that Jesus, when he, he fulfills all the rest that the Old Testament speaks of, the rest for the soul, the rest for the wanderer, the rest from real enemies that torment us, which is why Jesus is always healing on the Sabbath. The reason why Jesus is always healing on the Sabbath is because this is what Sabbath is, rest is all about, restoration of the soul. Which is why at the very next sentence after Jesus says, come to me for rest, it's a story about the Sabbath, and it ends with Jesus declaring, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Rest for your souls through Jesus is connected to Sabbath rest. Okay, now let's get back to Hebrews. Now, Hebrews is a, is a hard book to understand, granted. But I just want to focus on these words. There remains a rest for the people of God. And here's how I want you to hear this. For you who are weary, exhausted, and burned out, there is for you a rest that's built into the fabric and the rhythm of creation itself. And I would, and I will argue, into the fabric of new creation. There's a rest that you can enter into, a rest that you can set your watch to, a rest that you can build your life around that will bring you into the rest that you really need. Now, before all of you Sunday school overachievers raise your hand and say, yes, I know, it's Jesus. Jesus is the answer. My daughter's two, and we do these like family devotionals on Sabbath, and she, we ask her questions, she always just says, Jesus. I'm like, how did you get that? Like, you're not, there's not even Sunday school right now. How do you know that? It's just innate. Jesus is the answer. Now, for all of you, like, I know the rest. He's going to talk about, he's going to talk about Jesus. Yes, Jesus. And the practice of Sabbath. It's Jesus, and it's Sabbath with Jesus. See, the rest that's offered is the rest that happens in the context of Sabbath. Sabbath is the way we practice the reality 
Every single week, we get to practice the reality of the rest that Jesus brings us into. We actually habituate our our calendars around Jesus' rest. Think of it like that. So, we live in a culture of exhaustion. As followers of Jesus, one of our rule of life, one one of the, one of the, the ways that we live as a church community is that we set our week into the into a rhythm of rest. We as a church rest. Now, this day of rest might be Sunday for you. It's not for me because I'm working right now, literally. For you, it might be Sunday, which would be awesome. I wish I could do Sabbath on Sunday. Um, For me, it's Saturday. Some people take Friday. Some people take Monday, whatever. There's a day a week of rest where you build your calendar and your life around stopping and resting. Now, if you're new to this, you guys have taught extensively on this, but if you're new to this, Sabbath is simply a period of time where you stop working so that you can rest. It seems simple enough, right? Just stop working. Shabbat in Hebrew, Sabbath in Hebrew, means to cease, to stop. It's literally one of the Ten Commandments. It's like one of the Ten Commandments. It's like it got in there. Like all the stuff that you're not to do, like murder and then rest. Like, well, how did that one get in there? It's the only commandment we actually brag about breaking. Like, oh my gosh, I'm so busy. It's the only one that we actually brag about breaking. We're, we're told two things about Sabbath in the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath and keep the Sabbath holy. Remember to keep it holy. It's interesting that m- most of the other commandments starts with thou shalt or thou shalt not. But Sabbath, we're simply told to remember. We're told to remember as if we would easily forget As if life and work would tend to easily get out of control where we put off resting for a thing once a year called vacation and then do something super big and fun when we go on vacation and it's not really rest, so we need a vacation from our vacation. It's almost like we would do that kind of thing and therefore called to remember to rest. So built in the Ten Commandments, which the Ten Commandments, by the way, if you're like off-put by the Ten Commandments, it's basically the way God's free people were to live into their freedom. Remember slaves in Egypt being set apart, made a nation. Inside of these Ten Commandments is the good rule that God puts forth for his free people is to stop. We must remember to stop on Sabbath. My family and I, we practice Sabbath from Friday evening to Saturday evening. We stop work. We light two candles um, to remember the two, the two commandments to rest in the Sabbath, one based on liberation and one based on the imitation of God. My wife does a Sabbath blessing in Hebrew and waves, and my, my daughter, who's two, sits next to her and imitates her. Like she closes her eyes, and my daughter like closes her eyes and looks at me like, I'm supposed to close my eyes? I'm like, no, that's, that's your guys' thing to do. And so, and we eat, and we talk, and we reflect, and we play, and I lay on the floor and read books, and I have nowhere to go. My daughter loves it. She climbs all over me. She pulls my pinky and like takes me all over the house, and she knows daddy's not going to go downstairs to work today. It, this, is, this is the day of rest. We have to stop. We don't stop because our work is done. It's never done. I mean, if we stop when our work is finished, we will, when we get to the future, that's when we'll stop. When we get into the future, we will never stop. Some of you know this. You haven't stopped since grad school. Adults know that work is never done. With every accomplishment, there arises a new responsibility. Every swept floor invites another sweeping. But what Sabbath does is it helps us to resist the artificial urgency of our days, 
It helps us to once a week look at the ways the theology of progress drives us from all directions and stop and say, I resist. I resist this theology of progress. I resist that tomorrow is going to be better than today. I lean into Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount that says, don't worry about tomorrow. Live into today. Now, this is a very stupid example, but I'll do it anyway. I, one of my favorite hobbies is golfing. Um, I say this every time I'm up here as an unashamed plug to someone invite me to golf in Portland. So basically, there it is again. Um, anyway, so I'm, for me, I'm kind of a little bit of a perfectionist, so um, I've been playing golf for a long time, and I want the perfect golf club setup. Like, I want the perfect clubs, and I want them to do, look like this and match like this and feel like this and all this stuff. So I had knee surgery a few months ago, and I'm just barely getting back to where I'm able to play golf. And I played golf this last Friday, two weeks ago, and um, I wasn't hitting these certain clubs well. And so I was like, I need new clubs now. <laughs> I need the ones that will help me now with my knee, post-knee surgery clubs, that sort of thing. And so I found myself on Sabbath on Saturday sneaking downstairs, grabbing my iPad mini and looking at blogs of like clubs. I'm like, and I felt this urgency in my chest going, I just want them now. I want them to come right now. I want to buy these ones and I want them to ship right now and I want to get them by 3 p.m. today. I want this now. I want perfect now. And I, I came to my senses. I was like, sometimes you just get crazy and you come to your senses. And I finally, after a couple hours of sneaking down, actually just going, what are you doing? I, was, I came to my senses and I'm like, I'll never perfect this game. I, what is driving me? What's going on in my soul right now? That I want this now. I want perfect. I want to be in the future. I want to leave the present. I want to be in the future. And my mind can't rest. I had to snap out of it. And I had to remember, it'll never be perfect. Life will never be perfect. I have to cease, stop right now. Now, what happens when we do? What happens when we actually remember the Sabbath? We'd say, we'd say well, I'm going to set aside a, a period of time and I'm going to rest. What happens? Sabbath restores us. This is what Sabbath is supposed to do. This is the point that Jesus was bringing on, on the Sabbath in Mark chapter 2 when he said the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people and not people to meet the requirements of Sabbath. This is why Jesus healed and fed on the Sabbath. It's supposed to be restorative. But here's the problem. We too often have our own idea of how we want to be restored. We, like, we seek restoration through the Food Network through recreational sports, through shopping, through yoga. So when I say take a day a week and Sabbath and, uh, and the Lord of the Sabbath will restore you, you automatically think spa day or me day or honey, I'm going golfing, Shabbat Shalom sort of thing. Like I'm gonna do my thing. Now in the context of the 10 commandments in Deuteronomy, which were given to the generation that wasn't in Egypt, but was about to go into the promised land. And so the, the 10 commandments and the laws were, re, were like restated for them, re-given for this generation. There's a, a subtle difference between the 10 commandments, uh, the commandment to rest in Exodus and the commandment to rest in Deuteronomy. Now you've probably know this and you probably can recite this, but simply said in Exodus 20, it's rooted in God's rest, right? It's on the screen. Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Six days you shall labor. Why? Because the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in them, and on the seventh day he rested. So what the first commandment is about is be like God. Imitate God. God worked and he rested. You must be like God. In, in, uh, as you move into to the promised land, be like God. But then in Deuteronomy, it's something different. 
Same thing, observe the Sabbath day, keep it holy. But then it says this, why? Because you were slaves in Egypt and God delivered you. This is different here. This is remember the Sabbath day to, to remember liberation. Not, imi- not just imitation, but liberation. You're free. Now the difference is the, the callback to slavery that you're no longer slaves is this. This is the point. The, stab- the Sabbath is supposed to restore us back to our true identity. That's the point of Sabbath. You are not a slave, you're free. Free people rest. Free people are not driven by taskmasters. Now, we don't tend to have external pharaohs anymore, tyrants that keep us at work long hours and making us go seven days a week. There's laws against these sort of things, right? We don't have external pharaohs anymore, but we do have internal pharaohs. We have that little voice in our head that says, if we don't wake up and hustle, if we don't do something, make something, perform, kill it today, then we're nothing and we're nobody. We have these internal pharaohs that drive us every day. So we wake up on Sabbath, we're like, research that thing, go do that thing, make sure you work on your body, make sure you're doing this, Um, read this, say that, whatever it is, post this, and if you're crushing your Sabbath, all you want to do is like post it on Instagram, like, crushing my Sabbath today, Sabbath selfie, that sort of thing. Like this is like this internal pharaoh that makes you want to keep going, that internal pharaoh that says when you stop making, you will be worthless, and you'll feel worthless. Pharaoh now lives inside of us. It lives on our phones It lives on our computers, it lives on our TV, it lives on our feeds. We are driven by this inner voice, not a true vocation, vocation from our voice. This is like a a bastard vocation. This is like, in Eugene Peterson's language, a bastard vocation that says, if we don't keep hustling, we're nothing. This is the day where we're saved from the internal Pharaoh, that bastard vocation where we take up our true vocation as God's kids, God's free people. So when you Sabbath, stop, but not just stop, step back. It's very important to practice Sabbath well, to step back and look at the work you did the last six days. Stepping back is where you see how far you've come. You look at the work of your hands from this past week and how God was weaving through you glory, kavana, reweaving glory. You look back and you're like, what has God done? My wife and I, every Sabbath, we take a Sabbath walk where we practice gratitude. We go through our previous week and discuss all the things that we're grateful for. And every single week without fail, we stop and go, whoa, there was a lot going on this last week. Remind ourselves that we're God's kids in God's kingdom and and in our work, he's reweaving glory through us as my wife raises our daughter from home. As I'm doing, as I work in the church, as we have these conversations with neighbors, as we're connecting with friends, God's reweaving through us. This helps shape our imagination. With this practice, we're able to engage the work we're coming up with more intentionality. Sabbath restores us because it allows our souls to catch up to our body. I have uh, two uh, friends from our church in my congregation who battle mental illness who told me recently that they have loved COVID for one reason. It has allowed the world to slow down to the pace of their lives and it allowed them to get healthy. This is not surprising. The world moves way too fast. Sabbath is a day we rest and allow the world to rest, to be restored and slow down and let everyone catch up. We are to remember the Sabbath. The Sabbath restores us, but lastly, the Sabbath 
actually reforms us as well. My point here is this, that Sabbath won't always be easy. I want to make sure that I leave that here in this room. To be reformed from being malformed is never easy. Especially if you're just beginning to practice the Sabbath, I don't want to paint too rosy of a picture for you. Yes, I eat pancakes smothered in peanut butter and syrup on Sabbath. Yes, that's true. But it's not always that good. Sabbath is hard. Sabbath, taking a day to rest and worship and delight in God, will more often than not feel like detoxing from a drug. Your skin will crawl, especially at the beginning, and your mind will fixate on things like your phone and Amazon and what email you forgot to send. That's how you know it's working. This is how the internal pharaoh gets drowned in the sea. This is where you start to die a little bit. The Spanish mystic John of the Cross says that in our spiritual journey and our spiritual practices, to be suspicious if the cross of Christ does not begin to find us. Be suspicious when the cross of Christ doesn't begin to show up and find you. This thought works really well when we think about the Sabbath. On Sabbath, the cross of Christ will come and find you. It will help you face your own death, your own letting go. Don't be alarmed if, you, if on your Sabbath the cross of Christ begins to come find you. When I first began to, to Sabbath, um, almost 10 years ago now, um, on Saturdays, I would Sabbath on Saturdays, my day off was Monday. I worked at the church, we we're just starting Rally San Francisco, which means I was working the, on the sermon late into Friday. So I'd work all day Friday, and then I would rest on, I would try to rest on Saturday Sabbath. Now, the problem was I had sermon brain all day Friday night and into Friday morning, so I was so tempted to wake up Saturday morning and work on my sermon, to get my sermon that much better because on Sunday I had to perform for my life. I had to show up and do good so people would love Jesus and know his word and say thank you to me for bringing them close to Jesus. This is how I thought. I have to, I have to wake up and work because if I don't work, people won't know Jesus tomorrow. But I had to start Sabbathing. And it was a day I had to practice that that story was not true. I wasn't holding the world together or my own church together or the sermon together. God was at work. And if I was going to show up Sunday morning in the right headspace, I had to do it from rest, not for rest. So the cross of Christ came and found me on Sabbath a lot. At the beginning, I felt depressed. Why was I depressed? Well, because I had to come face to face with my own limits my own things I had to bury, let go of, let go of the illusion of control to die to some things. After years of this practice, I don't remember the last time I thought about a sermon on Sabbath, but that was not the, the case at the beginning. We Sabbath because not only does it restore us, but it reforms us. The cross of Christ comes and finds us. Now, if you're interested in this practice, and we hope that you are being a part of Bridgetown and, um, and for my church at Reality, um, there's ideas for how to practice this at bridgetown.church future. And in this, we talk about what does it look like to set your phone aside or heavy machinery that you use or devices that you use throughout the week and rest them and you rest and practices of rest and all that stuff. Choose a day and start doing it. Start practicing it. Practicing it with community, practicing it with your family. One idea that I want to leave before you is this idea of a Sabbath box that you create a Sabbath box that holds all the equipment you don't need on Sabbath. It might be like your highlighters if you're a student. 
It might be like your iPad, your car keys, your wallet, your phone. Put it in a Sabbath box. And on Friday, and if you, if, if you have things like left undone, take a little notepad and write things that are left undone and put it in a box and say, these are the things that should not be taken into the sacred space of Sabbath. And then, stripped of all of your tools and all of your machines, just simply pray, God, there is nothing I can do about these concerns, and I know they're in your hands, and you put them aside. And then on Saturday night or whenever that next night, you pick it up, and you pick it up prayerfully from a different space, from a place of rest. What things do I need to leave in here? What things do I can let go of? When you start to do this every week, we move from a culture of just exhaustion and burnout and not even knowing the state of our own souls and spiritual death to people who are so attuned and so aware of what's going on internally and in our neighborhoods. Now to end. Today, we enter into that wonderful church season called Holy Week or Jesus' Passion Week. And there's something that's often overlooked about Holy Week is that Jesus rested on Sabbath during Holy Week. He literally rested in the tomb. He and his followers observed the Sabbath day after he was crucified. Why this is important is this. In Genesis, we saw that God rested after his work of creation. Sabbath, rest, was built in the fabric and rhythm of creation itself. In the passion, Jesus rested after his work as well. On Holy Saturday, after completing his life of ministry and suffering on the cross for our sins, the Son of God rested in a dark tomb. And the rest of Jesus led to the glory of Easter Sunday in which his victory over death is revealed and God inaugurates new creation. These two rhythms of rest cannot be separated. God's work in creation and his work in redemption has deep connection to holy rest. It's been said that our willingness to rest depends on what we believe we'll find there. A lot of us don't want to rest because we're so afraid of what we'll find when we finally rest. What creation and new creation teach us in regards to rest is that when we finally rest, we can be confident that God himself will meet us there, which is why the promise of Jesus is to find to help us find rest, to make rest for our souls. Every Sabbath, after Ashley sings the candle blessing, I say Shabbat Shalom to everyone in the house. Shabbat Shalom to Mommy. Shabbat Shalom to Junie. Shabbat Shalom to Prince, our golden doodle. Shabbat Shalom to the guests. Shabbat Shalom to myself. And then I pray, thank you, Jesus, for bringing us into true rest. Rest for our souls. Would your rest fall upon our home now? Because there remains a rest for us. A rest for our souls as the people of God.